If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, would you take them out and turn to the book of Haggai in your Old Testament? It's the third to last book in the Old Testament. The text for our sermon is also printed in the bulletin, and you're welcome to follow along there. But if you do have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to use them. We're reading this morning Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. As you are finding that in your Bibles, I'd just like to to say, I think I'm speaking on behalf of all of us, what a great time we had last week worshiping in the park and gathering together for our, our anniversary picnic. We celebrated our 11th anniversary as a church, and I thought that was wonderful. But can I just say, I, I'm really glad to be preaching inside again today. <laughs> I, I know the early church didn't have buildings. They worshiped in homes and libraries and catacombs. I don't know that they ever worshiped under the flight path of 737s and military helicopters. So, so I'm glad that we're inside again today, and this should be a little bit easier. Haggai 2, let me read for us verses 1 through 9. Haggai 2, starting in verse 1. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place... I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together one more time as we dig into God's word. Heavenly Father, you are in fact the Lord of hosts, and this is your word which you have given in your grace to your people for our good and for the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ, that his name might be exalted and that we might be sweetly drawn to him. Father, we ask that you will open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see wonderful things in your word this morning that you will build up your people, edify your church. For it's in the name of Jesus and for his sake we pray. Amen. As we begin this sermon today, I just want to uh, begin by telling you who this sermon is designed for. Who this sermon is designed for, who I had in mind as I was preparing this sermon. And the truth is, this sermon is designed for people. Just ordinary people, just, just ordinary average human beings. And so, If you fall into that category, welcome. We're glad you're here. This sermon is for you this morning. I think the Lord has something he wants to say to you. Uh, Because I don't want us to get the idea that those who would serve the Lord, that those who would be a part of his church and be faithful to him, must somehow be superhuman. Must somehow not be prone to the temptations of ordinary people. They must somehow not be prone to the ordinary discouragements and, and disenfranchisements that we all face in the course of ordinary life. 
Because somehow we can get that idea that to serve the Lord and to do great things for him, we somehow have to rise above the cut of ordinary humanity. I was uh, researching some, some resources recently and came across a book designed for church planters, and it was called The Ox, Qualifications of a Church Planter. As though in order to, to successfully and faithfully plant and pastor a church, you had to have some superhuman capabilities. You had to have strength that was beyond the ordinary man. And I just wanted to say that, no. No, you don't have to be something extraordinary to be faithful to the Lord. What we have here in our, our passage this morning is an encouragement for us. It's encouragement for the people of God to find our hope not in ourselves or in who we are or what we have done for God, but to find our encouragement and hope in what God does for his people. I want you to notice, as we get into chapter 2 this morning, there's really a, a notable difference from chapter 1. In, in chapter 1, the focus was really, it was, it was sort of a rebuke to God's people. It was looking at them in their estate of apathy and discouragement, and, and, and there was some rebuke for that in saying, get to work, consider your ways. Have you been faithful to the Lord? And yet now the situation is different in chapter 2. Now the people are working on the temple. Now they have actually listened and obeyed the voice of the Lord in chapter 1, and they are working on the temple, and now the word is encouragement. It's encouragement to a people who are getting discouraged in their service to the Lord. And so we see a simple pattern in this passage. First, we see that God names the discouragement that they are feeling. Then he urges them to work. And third, God brings three witnesses for their encouragement. He sees their frustration, he urges them to work, and he draws on three witnesses for their encouragement. So let's look in verse 1. As we get into this text in verse 1, we see that Haggai gives us again the date that he brought this prophecy. It says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. So again, we know the exact day of this prophecy. And if we sort of translate this into our modern calendar, this would be October 17th, 520 BC. October 17th, 520 BC. And so just a review here where we've been. Chapter 1 started, the word of the Lord first came to Haggai the prophet on August 29th. August 29th, the word of the Lord comes to Haggai the prophet for the first time and tells the people this word of rebuke to get busy working and serving the Lord. And then It was at the end of chapter 1, we see the people have gotten to work on September 21st. Okay, so October, or August 29th, now four weeks later, September 21st, the people have listened and they've obeyed and they are working on rebuilding the temple of the Lord. And now as chapter 2 starts, it's October 17th, so it's just four weeks later and now the people are discouraged. It's been four weeks since they got to work on this building project that the Lord has given them. And, and think about what this means for them. I mean, think about this building project that they have gotten to work on. This, they are rebuilding the temple by explicit divine command. I mean, God himself has sent a prophet to tell them, this is what you are to do, to rebuild the temple. So they have explicit divine warrant for what they're doing here. And, and what is it that they are rebuilding? This is the temple of the Lord. This is the house of God on Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, in the promised land, the place where God has promised that his spirit will dwell, where the Shekinah glory came and settled on that temple, where his glory was. It was considered the place where heaven and earth met. 
the one place where God's spirit dwelled. So this is a significant project that they're working on. It's not as though God has given them some small, insignificant task. This is the central place in all of Israel. They're doing it by divine command, and yet just four weeks into this building project, they're losing heart. They're getting discouraged. And, you know, this is not impressive on their part, is it? And considering what they are doing and why they are doing it, to just four weeks in already be losing heart, be getting discouraged, that's not very impressive on their part. And yet, I think something about that is actually encouraging to me, because I'm not very impressive, right? I mean, this might not be impressive on their part, but that helps me know, okay, we're on the same page here, right? I I, I know what they're feeling, because I'm not very impressive either. It's easy for me to lose heart. It's easy for me to get discouraged, even when the the thing I am working on, even when I know that that this is where God has put me, that this is where God has called me, this is where God wants me to be right now, that I'm using the gifts that God has has given me, that I'm doing what he's been preparing me for, and and I I know all of those things are in place. Still, it's easy to get discouraged and to lose heart. And, And so this passage brings encouragement for those people who are engaged in God's work and yet losing heart. For those people who are doing what God has called them to do, and yet they're feeling discouragement in the midst of it. I know I can relate to how these people are feeling, and I wonder if some of you can as well. But here's what we're going to see in this text. God is merciful to unimpressive people. God is merciful. He brings a word of his grace and a word of encouragement to unimpressive people. And I think we see this about the Lord, that that he's not standoffish in this passage. He's not austere. He's not a, a, a... a distant father who's, you know, comes to his children and said, listen, I, I told you I loved you last week. Maybe next week I'll do it again. No, as soon as his children are feeling discouragement, as soon as they feel that, he's there and he's with a word of his grace for their encouragement. He's coming for them. He's not slow to reassure our fainting hearts of his mercy, of his love, his compassion, his tenderness. Even when it's unimpressive on our part, just a few weeks But here's the other thing about this date, and this is what's a little bit less obvious from the text. October 17th is the day of this passage, and October 17th is the last day of the Feast of Booths. So if we remember, if you've been in Leviticus 23 lately for your devotions, you read of the three main feasts that the people of Israel celebrated every year. There were three of them, and they went to Jerusalem. There was uh, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Booths, and the Feast of Firstfruits. Three times a year they had these celebrations. And the Feast of Booths, which is what we are in right here, is this. The people would go out into their fields and they would construct a temporary booth or a a tent-like device and they would live in that booth for seven days. And, And the purpose of this was to remember what God had done for them in the past, specifically when he brought them out of Egypt. As he redeemed them from Egypt, he set them free from their captors, he brought them out, and what did they do? They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And so setting up these tents in their field was a way of of reminding themselves, our people have done this before. We have been in difficult situations before. We have been in that place where we had no resources, where we had no money, we did not know where our next meal was coming from, and yet God was faithful in the midst of that. And so they would live in a tent to remind themselves, we've lived in tents before, and God is always faithful. God has always taken care of us. He's always provided for our every need. And so, remember where they are. If you remember chapter 1, he says, you are living in paneled houses. 
They're in a place right now, they're the exact opposite from where they were in Exodus. Now they have everything they need. They've spent 15 years working on their own houses and feathering their nests. They have all that they could possibly need, and they're finding it hard to trust God. And the irony is they're celebrating this very time when they had nothing that they needed, and yet God was faithful to them. And so we do this ourselves, don't we? In fact, as we come to the table of the Lord this morning for communion, is this not a festival that we celebrate to remember God's provision for his people? Whether we are in feast or fallow, plenty or want, wherever we are, this is a reminder for us that at a time when we had nothing of ourselves, when we could not do anything to save ourselves, God provided for our greatest need. God provided a savior, a forgiveness for our sins. And so here we come to the table to remind ourselves of this very thing. And so this is what is in the background of this passage, that it's at this very time when they're celebrating God's provision and his faithfulness. And here it is that they're getting discouraged. But again, this this just lets me know that we're on the same page with these people. That they're human beings, that they're prone to wander, they're prone to discouragement, they're prone to fainting in the work of the Lord. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. Because here here the Lord brings a word for these people. And this is the word of the Lord that Haggai speaks into this situation. Verse 2, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say this, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, notice this as we get into what the Lord says to his people. Notice this. The text here, it doesn't begin with the people complaining to the Lord about how discouraged they are. It doesn't begin with that. I I imagine there's a good chance they were complaining. If you've read the Old Testament, the Israelites were a little bit prone to complaining at times. They might have been, but that's not what Haggai tells us. He doesn't say they were complaining and then eventually they got God's ear and finally he responded. It actually starts with the Lord coming down to them first. And he comes and he names their frustrations. They haven't even brought it to the Lord yet. They haven't even cried out to him, and he comes first and he says, I know how frustrated you are. I know what you're feeling. And and it's encouraging to me again to see this. God's the one who brings it up. God comes and he's drawing his people out. He's drawing them to himself. He says, I know what you're feeling right now. I know that some of you are discouraged as you are working on this task. So God cares about his people. He cares even about the silent, unspoken frustrations that we feel even those frustrations that we might be too embarrassed to speak out loud because we think, I should be better than this. I've been a Christian for so long, I shouldn't worry about these things anymore. I know enough truth and I know the Bible well enough. I know all about God's providence. Why am I worrying? And so we're, we're embarrassed to share these needs and these concerns with others. But here, God comes to them first and he says, is this not what you're feeling? He draws them out and he demonstrates his care for them with three questions. He says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So some of these people have been falling into the comparison trap. They're they're thinking the grass is always greener in someone else's temple. They're comparing themselves to others. Now, when I was a child, I guess my brother and I would argue and bicker and compare a lot. And my mother used to say, every single time she would say, Those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. And it sounds so biblical. I was convinced that Jesus must have said those very words. Those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. And there's a lot of truth in that for us. There's a lot of truth in that. 
because apparently there were some of the people, probably the older people in the community, who were remembering the glory of what had been. They were remembering the glory days of the Solomonic temple, the grand temple that Solomon had built with all his wealth, with, with ten lampstands instead of one, and, and a grand sea instead of a little basin, ten tables for the showbread instead of just one. Now you remember, that, was, that temple was destroyed 67 years before this passage was written. 67 years. So, so anyone in this community had to be at least 67 years old to even have had a chance of seeing that temple, and probably a little older to have any functioning memory of what it was like. Uh, but apparently there were some who still remembered it. And maybe some of the younger ones had heard those stories sitting around the campfire in Babylon, hearing their parents talk about the glory of the temple that they had left. And so now here they are, and they're, they're starting to rebuild this new temple after they've come back into the land, but, but it's been destroyed, it's been in decay for all these years, and it's a lot of hard work, and it just doesn't, just doesn't look like what it's, it's supposed to look like. It doesn't have that same sense of glory that Solomon's temple had. It doesn't have the greatness and the splendor. And so they know what once was, and it's making them discouraged. Now, I have to say that as I was preparing this, this sermon and, and thinking about going through Haggai together as a church, I, I didn't pick it specifically because it talks to a community that, that once used to be bigger and grander and gloriouser and now is small and is discouraged by that. I didn't pick it specifically because of that. I don't like to be that obvious in my preaching. But, but we can't ignore that either, can we? We can't ignore that. There are some people, many people, here in this congregation who remember when this, when this sanctuary was a lot more full. You remember when there was a lot more going on at New Life Burbank. And, and let's be honest, that can be a little discouraging. As much as we're, you know, we're, we're doing our best and we're being faithful and we're pushing through and, and that's wonderful, but it can be a little discouraging when we stop and think about, about what once was and what could have been. And, it, and if you feel that way, verse 4 is for you. Let's look at verse 4 together. He says, Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. He says, be strong. Be encouraged. Work. Why does he say that? Because work is generally therapeutic for the human being. because It kind of gets your blood flowing and helps you forget your troubles. No. He says, work for I am with you. The promise is that his presence is still in the midst of the people. The reason for hope, the reason he gives for their encouragement, the reason to keep our hand on the plow is this. God is with us. God's presence is in our midst. And to think our assembly, it might not look like much to the watching world. They see our our little ragtag bunch of followers. The pastor sings off key. You know, we can't get things right, but... But what is our encouragement is that, that God is in our midst. His spirit dwells with us. That is what is encouraging to us. What was it that gave Solomon's temple its glory? Was it all the lampstands? Was it the silver and the gold and the curtain hangings that he had set up? No. It was that the glory of the Lord descended and dwelled in that temple. And what is it that gives a church its glory? Is it the outward furnishings? Is it the size of the sanctuary? Is it the the eloquence of the pastor? Let's hope not. What is it? It's the presence of the Spirit of the Lord that dwells in the midst of his people. That God is with us to teach us, to open our eyes to the beauty of Christ, to 
to encourage us, to strengthen our hearts. This is what our encouragement is. And God says that, that this is what is happening here, is that, that don't let the external circumstances get you down. Don't let, you, don't let them cause you to take your hand off the plow. Work, for God is with us. Look at verse 5. He says, I am with you according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. I am with you according to the covenant that I've made with you when you came out of Egypt. So here he is. He's taking them back to that Exodus experience. They're celebrating it at this time, and he takes them back specifically to it, to the covenant God made with them at Mount Sinai. If you remember, Moses said, Lord, how can we leave unless your spirit goes with us? He promised his presence would go with them. So this is what he's doing. He's helping them to look backwards to the past. He's helping them look backwards and say, look at how God has been faithful to us in the past. Look at what God has done for us. He has never let us down. He has always been faithful. He's promised his spirit will be in our midst. Therefore, take heart. Be encouraged. He is a faithful God. He's a God of his word. And this is what he's doing. He's reminding them of the gospel, isn't he? He's reminding them of the gospel. Although he doesn't use the word, he's looking back at God's deliverance in the past. He's seeing how God has saved them. And he's saying, look at the character of God, that he's faithful to his word. That's why Romans does the same thing in saying, he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We draw encouragement from looking back to God's faithfulness to us in the past. That's the first witness that Haggai draws on for our encouragement. The first witness is he looks to the past. God's work in the present is that his spirit is among them. God's work in the past is that God has saved you in the past. Look at verses 6 through 9, and this is the third witness. He's going to call on God's work in the future. His work in the past, his work in the present, his work in the future. Verses 6 through 9, let me read them for us one more time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now I know that that these kinds of passages are difficult. And these kinds of passages can be very intimidating to us when we read about this cosmic shaking of God shaking the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And, And let's be honest, it's passages like this that are often the reason why we don't spend a lot of time reading the prophets. We read these and it's just hard. We don't know what it means. We don't get that nugget that we can take away to keep our hearts encouraged throughout the day. We just don't get it. And I've been there. I, I understand that. But, I, but let's look at this and break this down together because here's the thing. Haggai didn't say this in order to confuse them. This is his encouragement to them. He wrote this for their encouragement, for their benefit. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training in righteousness. So here's what he says, verse 6. I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will shake the heavens and the earth. Now, my suggestion is this. We probably ought not to take this too literally. And this is what I mean when I say that. When he says shaking the heavens and the earth, I don't think he's referring to an actual earthquake where the heavens and the earth are actually shaking back and forth. 
Uh, and, you know, it's as though he kind of turns the nations upside down, holds them and shakes them until their silver and gold falls out of their pockets. That's not exactly what's going on here, I don't think. And here's the clue. He says at the beginning of verse 6, yet once more, yet once more, in a little while I will do this. Once more, in other words, he has done this before. He has done something like this before, and he says, I'm going to do this again. What God is going to do when he shakes the heavens and the earth in the future is similar to what he's already done in the past. And so I think it's more like this. It's more like when we tell somebody about something we have done and we say, listen, it was amazing. You should have been there. It was just absolutely earth-shattering. Right? We, don't, we don't mean that literally, that the earth actually shattered. As far as I know, the earth hasn't shattered. It's still here. We mean that metaphorically. We mean this was cosmic in the scope of its proportions. We mean this was of a significance that you cannot wrap your mind around. And that's what God is saying here. When he says, I will shake the heavens of the earth, he says, this is going to be of just absolutely massive significance. So here's what Haggai is doing. Again, he's just looked back to the Exodus. He's just talked about the covenant that God made with them at Sinai when they came out of Egypt, which was the main Old Testament event where God effected supernatural deliverance of his people, where they were in bondage and in slavery, and God saved his people. He redeemed them. He reconciled them to himself by freeing them from that slavery. Now, here's what he's saying. Yet once more, in just a little while, I'm going to do something like this again. God is going to do this again, but it will be an even greater deliverance on an even greater scale. And this will be the result when God acts in this way that this temple that they are working on will be expanded, it will be upgraded, improved, and fortified beyond what they would even believe if he told them. That when God acts in the future, this temple will grow. The treasures of the nations will come in, the silver and the gold, and the glory of this house will be greater than the former glory. And so he says... Take heart. Take heart. What you see with your eyes when you look around, it it may seem small and it may seem insignificant, and it's easy to lose heart because of that. But God is at work in this. God is doing something that, that will make Solomon's temple just look like a shack in comparison when the silver and the gold from all the nations come pouring in to adorn the Lord's temple. He says to them that that you're building something right now, and you have to go by faith. You are working by faith right now because you don't know the significance that this work you are working on is going to have in the future. You can't see everything that God is up to through the work that you're doing. So he says, take heart. You're working by faith. You're you're pouring into something right now, and, and you have no idea of the grand scope that God is going to use this for in the future. And so they're called to work by faith. He says there's a significance to what you are doing. It goes far beyond what you can see merely with your eyes. And so let's see how this plays out then in the future. Let's see that that God has made a promise here, and I want us to see how Jesus is the yes and amen to this promise. The promise then is this. The coming glory of the temple will be greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. And and this is, is, we call it Zerubbabel's temple because he's the temple builder here, and it did increase. It did grow, didn't it? We know that just in the years before Jesus was born, when uh, Herod the Great was king, He did enlarge the temple. He did expand it. He did fortify this temple. But I don't think that's what Haggai is talking about here. It was not until after Jesus' birth. Remember what Jesus said. Destroy this temple, and I will build it again in three days. And he said this because he meant the temple was his body. So for all the glory that Solomon's temple had, 
for all of the majesty and the solemnity and awe, for all of the joy as a place of worship, that was only a dim shadow of what God would do through the later temple, which was Christ. And we can go one step further than that. Remember Ephesians 2. This is what Paul says. The church is, Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. The church, therefore, now is growing into a holy temple for the Lord. The treasures of the nations are coming into the temple, and we don't mean the temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, we mean the church. The church which is now the new temple of the Lord. And the treasures of the nations are not the silver and gold. Rather, it's the hearts of the people. Much more glorious because the hearts of the people of all the nations are coming into God's church. And here we are, a witness to that. A witness to that because for them there, I mean, in Israel, to think that people on the other side of the world would would one day come into God's people was almost unimaginable to think that all the treasures of the nations would one day come streaming into God's house. And yet here it is. We ourselves are witness to this fact. But here's the other thing about this. Joshua and Zerubbabel, the remnant of the people, they never saw any of this. They never saw any of this. What they saw was 520 years before Jesus was even born. And so they were called to work by faith and not by sight. They were called to be faithful in the task that the Lord had given them, to faithfully work in their little corner of the vineyard where God had planted them, to do the task that he had assigned to them for that time. And, and they would not necessarily see, they would not know what was to come from that, what God was doing in the midst of them. And although it seemed small at the time, God could come and he could say, work, because in just a little while, I'm going to come and I'm going to redeem and I'm going to do something that you would not believe if you were told. And so that was their encouragement to be faithful in their own task. And so it is for us today. We do not know God's plans for the future, and yet he says to us, work, be strong, for I am with you. My spirit is in your midst. And once more, once more again in a little while, God is going to do something so grand and so glorious that we could not imagine it if we tried. When he will bring all his people safely home, that day when every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we work and we labor under his promise of Jesus. I will build my church. If our task seems small and humble, consider the glory of the King and take joy that he has called us to have a part, to play a role in the building of his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we cling to your promise. We cling to your promise, and Father, we pray for grace that we may also cling to your commands, that we may take them to heart, that we may obey, that we will in fact work and be strong, taking heart from the promise of Christ that he is with us, that he is the chief cornerstone, he is the church builder, not us. So Father, build your church, encourage us through your word, we pray, for it's in the name of Jesus. Amen.